what's going on ladies and gentlemen welcome back to another episode make sure you get your coffees ready i've got mine handy we're doing double espresso today it's that kind of day it's rainy in chicago but today's special because i get to sit down with jeff korzenik who's the chief investment strategist at fifth third which is one of the country's largest regional banks and responsible for the allocation of over 30 billion dollars in client investments he's a regular on financial news networks like new york times the wall street journal and other publications, and most recently, the author of the newly released book, Untapped Talent, How Second Chance Hiring Works for Your Business and the Community. And as you'll see, Jeff is one of the most intelligent individuals we have in this space of economics, and equally one of the most humble that I've personally met. This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalifa. Let's maybe just dig in because I think you have an interesting past. Aside from you know studying economics at uh, at Princeton, um, one of the things you were just telling me now before we started recording is uh, you did some Eastern language studies as well. Just curious if you can touch on that. I don't think a lot of people probably would know that. So. Yeah, it, it's it's a couple decades in the past now, but um, I have a Near Eastern Studies certificate of proficiency, which is Princeton's equivalent of a, of a minor, and the language track for me was Persian, which. Giving I started it in 1980 was kind of bad timing in terms of being able to practice, but beautiful culture. I've traveled uh, across North Africa and uh, a little bit into Jordan and Turkey. So I've been uh, uh, visited that part of the world and, and it's still an area of great interest and, and just a, another personal passion. That's amazing. You know, what's funny is I was just listening to, if you know, Brene Brown, um, she, had, she recently did a podcast with President Barack Obama, and he was talking about how interesting it is when you sometimes come across some of the best economists, as, a, as an example, as scientists, and, and when you kind of dwell on their background, in many cases, it's actually far removed from what their topic of, of profession is. You know, isn't that interesting? It, it is, but you know, it also sensitizes you to, uh, as someone who studies economics, and that's really my professional focus, there's an element of understanding of how culture can influence economics. And, uh, you know, my senior thesis, for instance, is written about cultural, infra- uh, cultural influences on attitudes towards interest. So whether it's a Muslim prescription against riba, you know, I- interest or uh, Soviet uh, interpretations of capital can't really add value, it's labor that adds value, you get these uh, Cross currents of culture and economics, and I think that's had a big influence on my career. Yeah, it's interesting that you draw those those two together. What was the impetus for you to get into economics itself? Was it was it something you've always intended on doing? You know, I I loved it from the get go. I remember in high school having conversations about this was in the seven, late seventies. There were a lot of economic problems in the United States, runaway inflation and uh, uh, and uh, poor growth, that stagflation period. And I remember debating as 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 young high schoolers do, debating policy issues and learning that there were things I didn't understand. And I, I decided to start looking at economics and uh, in college just became fascinated uh, with the study in, in a very practical sense, not, not a, in an obscure sense, but what does it mean for policy? What does it mean for individuals' lives? And uh, I started reading the Wall Street Journal every day in college. And you know, I was one of those students. Nice. How did you, how did you sort of decipher um, the difference between the academic side of economics, which you know, can, can be a, a rabbit hole in itself, but then really translate, translating that into kind of the real world application of, especially in the financial sector where, where most of your career has been. 
You know, I think that that was just something that you're, you're wired one way or the other. And I was wired towards the practical side. And I even remember uh, a uh, macro, second year macro teacher who talked about how you could use the tools of economics to look at the trade-offs on, say, policy like minimum wage. And I thought that that was really uh, what economics should be all about, understanding trade-offs and what that means for individual people's lives. And, and that uh, that really captivated me. And there was never any question that that was the route I wanted to go. Did you, just out of, this, out of curiosity, but did you ever have, you know, a single kind of influential person that, you know, you you kind of put as, as a as a moral compass, you know, psychologists might have Freud, Carl Jung, sure. economists might have, you know, the wealth of nations to point to. I'm curious what, uh, what it is. You know, I, I didn't, I'm a believer in the free enterprise system. And I, I think we have forgotten just how beneficial that is. It's easy to point to the flaws in our society, but I think we, um, with other models no longer clearly competing, right? In those days, it was the Soviet Union. And you could say, well, you know, we may have our flaws, but we're doing a heck of a lot better than they are. These days, I think there's more confusion around that. Uh, so I, I was influenced by a couple of texts um, at the time, George Gilder's Wealth and Poverty, which was somewhat of the, the, the blueprint for the Reagan administration's deregulation and focus on trying to stoke more economic energy in the, into the economy. Uh, Martin Oaken's um, uh, uh, Efficiency and um, Equality, I think is a really important uh, book. I, I, I've recently reordered some of those books a few years ago. They haven't always aged as well, but I think that the general sense of trade-offs and understanding where a free enterprise system can do such a good job in building societal wealth and where we have to understand trade-offs between the kind of society we want and optimizing economic growth and overall efficiency. And, and so those have been pretty influential texts for me. And, and what is what is your personal kind of ideology as 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 as, as, as it relates to basically the the maybe mindset or, or the formula that you ascribe. And, and you write a lot about this actually in the book on that talent in terms of what's required, at least one piece of it being societal. But curious from an economic perspective, having already passed through COVID, still sort of in the midst, but hopefully coming out, what do you see kind of ahead for, especially for the US and, and, and different? You know, I, I worry that we've lost an appreciation for capitalism and the free enterprise system as, as in engine of growth and opportunity. Uh, we focus too much, I think, societally on some of the, um, the flaws in the system, perhaps, or places where the system has not operated in an optimal sense. Uh, I should mention another um, uh, influential writer, Claire Gaudiani, uh, who is a um, now emeritus professor of philanthropy. She used to be the president of Connecticut College, but her really great philanthropic work was done um, she was a professor of philanthropic studies at NYU. And she has a really interesting take. She says, we as Americans are more generous. Statistically, you can show we are more philanthropic than um, just about any other country. And her contention, and I buy this, is that we are um, more philanthropic. We're, we are not more philanthropic because we're rich, but we're rich because we're more philanthropic. And that there is something of a magic formula when you have government as an entity which enforces certain rules and you need for um, a certain level of infrastructure, particularly rule of law. Then you have capitalism and free enterprise as this wealth generator and generative efficiency, but you need the nonprofit sector. And that bridges the gap in ways that 
uh, to the kind of society we want that neither government can nor private corp corporate America can. And, and that's been a big influence on me. And it really came together in this book where it, it shows that kind of uh, three-part partnership in action, where to get this society, societal problem solved, it can't just be up to government. It can't just be up to the private sector. It can't just be up to the nonprofit philanthropic sector. You need everyone's participation. Well, I mean, that, that's honestly what stood out to me the most. Like when I when I came across your, your book, I think what stood out to me the most was out of all the things that you could have written about, right? Inflation. And there's like these these typical uh, points that, you know, uh, typical economists will, will probably write about inflation being one of them, right? GDP is an example the currency devaluation is all sorts of things that you could have pointed to. What what made you really want to focus on this specific topic? I'm, I'm ultimately a pragmatist. And I thought that this was the book that was needed to advance this. I had started studying these models of how you get people with criminal records back in the workforce successfully, probably going back to 2014, 2015. And uh, as my body of knowledge grew by, by seeking out businesses that had done this, I realized I had a fairly unique body of knowledge. No one else had done this. Uh, no academic had done this. No nonprofit had, at that point really sought them out in the way that uh, I had, nor um, applied kind of a modeling uh, approach, uh, approach to this. So by 2019, I flew 141 flight segments. I was doing talks all over the country. I had one day in, uh, actually, I guess this was early last year, pre-COVID. I did a morning presentation in Orlando and an evening presentation in Los Angeles. There was huge demand for this knowledge, but I simply couldn't, um, I, I couldn't be in more places than I already was. And, and there was a real limit to uh, how much I could accomplish just giving a 45-minute uh, talk. I also learned that uh, employers would get be really interested in doing this. They would walk away from a talk, they would go back, and ultimately they, they couldn't move forward because they didn't have a guide to answer enough of the questions and they would get ground down by you know, forces of resistance, passive resistance and inertia that, that plague any, any kind of uh, pioneering new initiative. So the book became the necessity to leverage my time and to provide the more thorough guide that would allow employers to, to actually execute on this strategy. Well, I mean, especially when you talk about that, that resistance, I think one of the the, the biggest points in the book that you're trying to make in, in terms of the quote unquote, why this matters, you, you highlight that in the US, there's 19 million people approximately with a felony con conviction, uh, including one in three black men. But also there, there's tens of other millions that are burdened with, let's say, misdemeanor uh, convictions as an example that maybe aren't part of that umbrella. And maybe part of the resistance is just from a corporate perspective, not understanding or not having a process as to how to include such individuals within the workplace, right? That's part of the problem. Absolutely. And I think there's a natural inclination when you hear someone has a felony, exactly. you always think the worst. And you think, you know, multiple axe murderer kind of thing. My friend Josh Ho, who was a justice reformer, calls it the Hannibal Lecter syndrome. You always think the worst possible crime. And, and the reality is that uh, roughly half of people with felony convictions were convicted of a crime of such a minor threat to public safety 
they weren't even sentenced to a prison term. They, they might have spent some time in, in, in county jail, but typically they were fined or community service or put on probation um, and, and never actually served a prison term. So that tells you that a lot of these crimes are not what we think they are. And then when you get to the people who've actually been sentenced to prison terms, a lot of those are for very serious crimes. Uh, uh, the plurality of those are for crimes of violence. But when you start looking at the demographics of, of who first goes behind bars, it, it's overwhelmingly young men. And young men have are challenged with neurological development. You know, until they get to their sort of mid to late 20s, um, they do a pretty bad job of balancing uh, risk and reward and near to particularly near term reward versus long term reward and uh, tend to be hot headed and, and have poor uh, emotional management. And without a lot of supervision in their lives and sometimes with trauma in their lives, they can just get in bad situations. And people who have done very bad things are not necessarily bad people, not even then, and not necessarily uh, who they are today. And so it, it really requires a lot of um, empathy. You know, you, you don't lose sight of the fact that these were crimes typically with victims, um, and you don't lose sight of the fact that there have to be consequences. But at the same time, you can look and say, boy, you know, there but for the grace of God go I, you know, I could have been in the wrong situation at the wrong time, and this could have been my life. And uh, shouldn't people, um, you know, perhaps not everyone deserves a second chance, but I think everyone deserves the right to earn a second chance. And for those who are willing to earn that second chance, I, I do think uh, th they should they should get that. I, I love that distinction, right? Because I think from the onset, if someone maybe is just reading kind of a snippet or a demo of what the book is about, that's the first thing that they jump to the conclusion. Well, how is it practical? Or I, I think they maybe missed the substance to what you just alluded to, that it's not inclusive of everyone who might be um, you know, deserving of a consequence or punishment. The question that I think you're posing is for maybe more of the petty crimes. As an example, I mean, look at cannabis, regardless of, of anyone's position on it uh, in a country like, or sorry, in a state like uh, Illinois, as an example, where now it's, it's uh, legal. How many would come out of incarceration as, as part of maybe having handled or, or dealt with cannabis that are now back into the system of, of our economy that don't really know where, where to get back in? Yeah, I mean, it's important to recognize that there's hardly anyone is in uh, prison for possession of pot. You know, that's just not unless it was with intent to, to, to deal. And even then, it's usually multiple. But the drug trade brings a lot of violence with it. Uh, one of the second chance employers I focus on in the book or I, I highlight is Jeff Brown. He, he's got about 500 second chance employees in, in Philadelphia in his grocery store chain. And he's tremendous, you know, incredible visionary leader on, on a civic front as well as uh, as well as a business front. He said to me, you know, young men who are trying to make money, who have no alternative, are often involved in the drug trade. Right. If you're involved in the drug trade, part of your job is to protect your inventory. The way you protect your inventory in the drug trade is with a gun. And young men with guns are a bad combination. It's not that hard to imagine sooner or later something happening. And, uh, you know, that doesn't excuse it. I'm, I'm uh, of people in the justice, you know, to the degree I'm considered part of the justice reform community. Yeah. Um, the, 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 it's a big spectrum. I tend to be on the law and order side. Um, it, it, what I'm mostly concerned about, well, you know, I'm concerned about a broad array, but what I really focus on is this whole system doesn't work if people who have 
done their time don't have that chance to rehabilitate and rebuild their lives. To me, that's been the big missing link. We could have the most perfect policing system in the United States, the most perfect courts, and yet we still have 19 million people with felony convictions who are not able to get all the opportunities that allow them to advance and rebuild their lives. So that, that to me, is the point where um, we can do a lot better. Well, that's an incredible case study. And, and exactly, uh, I'm, I'm definitely in agreement with what you're saying. Um, and and I, it makes me wonder, though, from a corporate lens, how do you change the, the kind of historic system that involves checking for criminal records, as an example, from the onboarding process? Before you even you know, get to that first day, how do you change that, that, that twist to, to be more inclusive, I would say? It, it, it's a tough, um, you know, one of the reasons we haven't done very well is because it is very hard. Um, right. But I think it's changing. It does have to be top-down leadership. It, it, this is all but impossible. There are a couple of outliers, but it's all but impossible if this is not led by corporate culture and leadership at the top. There are a few cases where it's um, someone who reports to the leader who's really driven, but generally it's, it's got to be led from, from the top. And uh, th- there's pathways. And of course, I write about this, as you, as you would expect, to taking baby steps. So one of the things that I saw as very consequential is an employer is in, interested in this go visit one of the employers in my book or one of the other employers that are that are doing this. And it's proof of concept. Um, the, the company uh, I focus on in a case study chapter devoted to a company called JBM Packaging in, in uh, Lebanon, Ohio. One of the really consequential points along the road of their journey was to go and visit Nehemiah Manufacturing, which is widely recognized as one of the best second chance employers in the United States. Uh, so it's about an hour away. Their executive team went to Nehemiah, saw this company where 130 of their 180 employees were second chance and saw that it worked and it was very profitable. And that was eye-opening. So, you know, those are the kind of steps, given the fact that the model that I believe is most effective and best return on investment involves getting involved with nonprofits, go meet with nonprofits. So it's a gradual process uh, to doing this. I think it's very hard to just turn the switch, but um, there are, to, to your point, there are a lot of embedded practices in talent acquisition that de facto discriminate against people with, with, with records and, and don't give them necessarily the full look that you would want if you're just trying to maximize uh, talent effectiveness. And you know th- this is changing too. A lot of that occurs among HR professionals where um, whatever their intentions are, there's a career disincentive to taking a risk. They have often viewed their role as risk managers for their for their company, and and why would you take a risk if if you make a hire uh, with a criminal record and they turn out to be superstars? Well, it's just another good hire. If something goes wrong, who hired that person? So organizations like SHRM, the Society of Human Resource Management, under the leadership of Johnny Taylor, their CEO, have just taken tremendous steps forward in providing education and cover for HR professionals. They even have a certification program that that they offer for free, even to non-members of SHRM uh, called the Getting Talent Back to Work Certificate. So there's a lot of effort here. And I think this is an important development. There was uh, at the end of April, uh, the announcement of the formation of the Second Chance Business Coalition, which are roughly 30 of of, the the blue chip names in American uh, business have all uh, 
said they are committed to this. And what's important is it's not in any kind of, you know, theater, kabuki theater, performative way. They are committing to pilot programs. Several of the members already have pilot programs, sharing data on those programs. And so they've made a very concrete commitment. That helps the rest of the business community, right? You can now say, and the coalition is is co-chaired by uh, Jamie Dimon of, of J.P. Morgan, Craig Arnold of Eaton Corp. So you have these two great, you know, CEOs widely recognized in the business community as, as great leaders, and they're saying it's okay. And I think that that goes a long way as well. Yeah, certainly, and, I, and, and thank you for highlighting those those points. And and actually, uh, to that topic, you know, in the book you talk about from a societal level why this is important and how how businesses can get involved. From a company level, we, we sort of touched on this now in terms of the second chance that you give an employee really improves their engagement, uh, their morale, the, the loyalty as an example, which leads to lower turnover costs. Curious for those listening who are still wondering, and obviously um, would, would love for you to kind of put on that economics hat, but from a macroeconomic level, what are some of those maybe growth drivers that you've uh, come across, especially in your research before writing the book that really stood out to you or resonated the most? Sure. I, you know, one of the things that, uh, first of all, on a macroeconomic standpoint, the potential growth of any economy is based on two and only two factors. How fast can you grow your workforce and how fast can you grow their productivity? So that speaks directly to getting more people who've been sidelined to the workforce in and, and can we invest in them in ways that, um, that make them very productive employees. So um, this really gets to the heart of economic growth. And, and it's interesting. I started writing the book in uh, 2019 and I started talking about the coming labor shortage in the United States. And then the pandemic comes and you think, well, what labor shortage? But the structural labor shortage is still there and is now becoming ever more important and, and apparent to the business community. So this was just viewed as a pragmatic um, solution. But um, the fact that there are lots of people who could be employed, people with criminal records, doesn't mean that they're good employees, right? That's, that's the question. And so this is where these data points, there've been a couple studies, one using data from the US military, which looked at people who've been granted uh, these felony waivers that allowed them to enlist they've actually got to the rank of sergeant before people without felony waivers. So, you know, that's a, that's a sign of engagement and quality. And then uh, Johns Hopkins Hospital System did a big study. Uh, at the time, they were up to uh, 500 second chance hires had gone beyond it. Uh, of course, you know, not all, you start with 500 hires, not all of them are going to work out, but none of them were problematic terminations. On, and on average, they found they were more engaged and loyal. And that's consistent with Every piece of anecdotal evidence of the study of the companies I've I've studied, they all say these are some of their most engaged employees, and they have lower turnover with this with this population than their average. So that's that. If that's not a solution to a labor shortage, I don't know what is. And, and actually, just just a question there on the on the labor shortage side. So on one hand, you're focused on you know how do we get certain individuals replugged into you know the economic cycle. On the other hand, you have boomers that are sort of transitioning out or ones that are in the primary industries, i.e. manufacturing as an example, like certain industries that maybe are phasing out as well due to the disruption of digitization, innovation, tech. What, what is your outlook on that, on that side of the spectrum as well? Like, is it, is it similar? From your side? So I, I um, yeah, I mean, there's clearly a demographic argument here, and they're talking about baby boomers leaving at the rate of about 10,000 a day on average. That was prior to the pandemic. 
which has accelerated the loss of the older end of the baby boom. The, the labor force participation rate of people over 65, which had actually been kind of growing over the years prior to the pandemic, fell apart. And unlike other demographic groups, we're seeing no improvement there. So I think a lot of those um, over 65 workers are just hanging up their hat and saying, that's it, I'm done. And, uh, and so that's a, that's a acceleration of a loss of talent. Um, and some of it's quite acute in the goods producing economy, because very often this was a, a, a part of the economy that had trouble attracting labor. Um, because people had sort of written it off when we were bleeding jobs uh, in 2000 to 2010. It's actually been coming back. And uh, it's interesting that, you know, I know the technology replaces labor story, but it doesn't explain all of it because technology has always been replacing labor and manufacturing, 200 years of history of that. Um, and it also doesn't explain why if technology is improving, is, is replacing labor, and yes, we lost 5 million manufacturing jobs in the U.S. in the first 10 years of this uh, century. How did the globe gain 35 million jobs in manufacturing? Right. So, so, so there's disruption that goes on. Disruption in manufacturing labor is not the same as writing it off for good. There's no doubt that service jobs will grow faster than goods producing jobs, but there's still growth in goods producing jobs when you look at it globally. And the, the, the cost imbalance that drove those jobs overseas has changed. And so more of those jobs are coming back to the US and, and that's a particularly good fit. I mean, look, if you start with 19 million people with felony convictions, that's such a big population, you'll find every talent and skill across, across that group. But it's particularly well suited for things like manufacturing because those tend to be higher wage jobs because they're middle skill jobs. They don't require a college degree. They, they uh, do require some training to add value, but it's that's training that can be done um, without a college degree, and some of it can even be done in prison. Uh, so it's, it's a particularly good fit. And you overcome some of the objections. You're not customer facing typically uh, in most of those roles. You're not handling money. You're not handling drugs. You're, you've got all, and, and you do drug testing. So you, you get around a lot of the objections um, to that. So that's a particularly good fit. And, and the National Association of Manufacturers, in fact, is starting to embrace this as well. But we have a talent shortage across the economy. It is becoming more apparent every day. The pandemic has uh, intensified the skills mismatches we have in the economy, the geographic mismatches, and the big skill, in, in my view, that employers are going to need in the next decade is how do you find talent? How do you keep talent? How do you develop talent? And that's a little bit different. That, that has always been important, but not to the degree it's going to be important in the next 10 or 20 years. Yeah, well, thank you for that. One, one of my questions was going to be like, what, what specific industries you know, do those 19 million or so individuals get plugged back into? And, and you answered that uh, quite thoroughly. And another actually was that talent shortage. And I'm, I'm curious, from, from, your, from your perspective, maybe, why, why does that actually exist? You know, in a, in a land of 350 or so million people, some of the best universities in the world, and I hear the, the same connotation as well from some of the leading tech CEOs that, you know, George, we're, we're, we're struggling not only finding, but keeping top talent because, you know, they're, especially with our generation, I think kind of jump from startup to startup, you know, yeah. especially if you're in a software development, it's a bit easier to do that virtually and remotely. And so, so mo the, the, the mobility is a bit harder to constrain. But again, just curious on that side. I mean, the, the big overriding reason is demographic. We just don't have enough children or we stopped having enough children 20 plus years ago. And uh, so fertility rates in the U.S. 
uh, number of, of births that a woman can be expected to have is below the replacement rate of our population. And only immigration kind of keeps us whole, but e even that's an incomplete solution because this is a global phenomenon of the, of the 30 odd countries in the OECD, the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, which is sort of the, the 30 odd developed countries of the world, only one has a fertility rate above replacement rate. So that, that tells you that immigration alone isn't going to solve this. It's going to be very much about looking into our population, empowering people to be as productive as possible. And part of that solution is taking people who've been completely sidelined from the labor force or dramatically underemployed, like people with criminal records. So I, I, um, I think it's overall a healthy development um, for society, um, but it's got a lot of growing pains associated with it. Love it. Uh, well, switching sides here, uh, just, just for a little bit at least, and talking about productivity, but in a different light, uh, we were talking about you authoring your, your book and, and your first book for that fact, uh, Untapped Talent. I'm curious just for those wondering, because I think you know, uh, people see the, 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 the side of you, Jeff Korzenik, who, you know, appears on TV, speaks of uh, economics, specifically with Fifth Third, which I want to get into from a leadership perspective, sure. but just on the book itself. How was that experience like for you writing for the first time, putting this all together while, by the way, holding a full time job of not any just role, but the chief investment strategist at Fifth Third? Um, well, a couple of things. First of all, I should say that this is uh, an outside business a project from the bank's perspective. So this was done on my own time and the views expressed in the book are not necessarily the views of Fifth Third Bank, you know, all the standard uh, disclaimers, though, though of course I needed the bank's permission and, and uh, they've been very supportive of this, this field of research over the years. So I'm very grateful um, for that. Uh, but um, my natural uh, tendency towards procrastination did not serve me well. <laughs> uh, um, I, uh, I finally had a, a bit of a wake up call um, with a couple months left to go and realize uh, to submitting my manuscript and realizing I just wasn't where I needed to be. I ended up taking two or three vacations uh, away from my family just to go off and write and get away from phones and, and screens and, and apart from uh, the manuscript. Uh, so, so it required a lot of time. By the, the time I was about two months uh, out, I created, a, you know, being, being the numbers analytical guy I am, I, I created a spreadsheet. I had a target word count and I said, well, okay, how many uh, words do I have to write each day? I can do more on weekends. And I came down to the last two months that were basically, I had to write 500 words every weekday and a thousand words every weekend day. And I simply wouldn't go to sleep till I did it. And I had a spreadsheet tracking it. And so um, there are a lot of nights up till one in the one in the morning and, and that kind of thing. But it, it, it um, it's what it took to get the job done. And, and uh, uh, you know, I probably shouldn't admit this. I did miss my deadline by one week, but my publisher was very good about that. And, and uh, um, I think it's been very pleased by, by, by the product. Yeah, well, that's, that's the one thing I was going to ask is kind of like how, how your process was, because I often hear it's you have to set these kinds of milestones, because it's also it's tough to stay accountable when you're doing this as a side project. Right. And there's no one really, I mean, probably the publisher alone, but but aside from that, you have to be accountable to writing that yourself. So it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting. Is there something that you learned from yourself that you otherwise wouldn't have if you hadn't written this book? Uh, well, I learned a lot about the subject matter. And, and one of the things that was important to me is I knew I knew everything I needed to know and share about the very specific of the models of hiring people with criminal records. 
But I thought that business readers also needed a lot more context. They needed to know things about the criminal justice system. And as much as I thought I knew a lot about that, I knew I had to get every detail right. You know, I, I couldn't, um, I didn't want to undermine the credibility of the basic model of the book with the peripheral context. And so I invested a tremendous amount of time and it was a great learning experience. So I, I guess uh, one thing is you're, you're never too old to learn a lot um, uh, is part of it. Um, I, I think I started to recognize the limits on my uh, ability to work 14, 15 hour days, uh, which was something that seemed pretty easy to do in my twenties is is no longer so easy to do. And I, you know, I, I mean, got kind of ridiculous. I, I think I had two months of straight headaches, you know, <laughs> towards the end of, uh, of the manuscript, but uh, from, from, from just the work effort, but it got done and it's something I'm proud of. And, and so I, I, um, I do plan to write another book, uh, at least one more book. I've, I've got some uh, things uh, in mind and I'm not ready. I wanna make sure this book gets a good launch uh, first. Uh, so so uh, I will do it better the next time in, in, in terms of understanding all the work. And, and I also, I, I do feel badly. I, I, uh, this was a burden on my family, you know, in the sense that taking vacations away from the family is, is something I don't do. And, and I became obsessed with it. And, and, that's that. That's a family trait, you know. We're, we're I mean, a dog with a bone. I, you know, I got I sunk my teeth into this topic, and I'm not letting go. And that's and that's still true. So, uh, um, it, it's a strength that for this kind of a, a endeavor, but probably makes me a little insufferable at the dinner table. <laughs> this is all I can talk about. Well, luckily it was short term, but you know, it's. Uh, I'm, I'm sure looking back. Oh no, I'm still I'm still talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure your family is, is quite proud of, of this accomplishment, Thank regardless. You. Um. Uh, jumping to fifth third here for a second from a leadership perspective, uh, you've been at the firm for 10 plus years now um, in a leadership position, of course, managing over $30 billion um, as the chief investment strategist. I'm curious, first of all, for, uh, again, for those probably wondering, and it's going to be d- difficult to answer this in, you know, in a minute synopsis, but how does one become the you know, chief investment strategist of one of the largest regional banks in the U.S.? Uh- What's really been what I think really worked well for me is uh, cultural alignment and a leadership structure that really supported advancement. And so I, I, I uh, I've been extraordinarily happy and engaged because my values of putting clients first are well supported and aligned with the institution. And that is um, sad to say not true of every place I've worked on Wall Street. And in, in particular, you know, the, the, uh, the prestige of the name of a firm has nothing to do with whether they're really committed to serving their customers and clients. And I've been very fortunate. I, I, I like to say it's kind of the Midwest values of, of Fifth Third Bank. You know, we are regulated as fiduciaries, but many other in the private bank, but many other companies are too. But I say we're regulated as, as fiduciaries and we're Midwesterners, so we mean it. And I, and I think that that culture, and I'm not a Midwesterner by, by birth. I, I, I don't live in the Midwest right now. I'm, in, I'm based in Florida, but I think the cultural values uh, really come through, and that's and and I could not have um, advanced um, without that kind of alignment because it makes you energized about coming to work every day. And I also was fortunate that 
when you have values like that, you attract great people. So I have a, a just an incredible team. We are small but mighty, and uh, we have a very high level of trust. Um, we are, um, you know, I'm, I'm probably a horrible. A uh, horrible manager in that you know my team and I are texting on weekends and you know yeah, yeah there's uh, uh, my bad habits of not really um, turning off. Uh, I probably have infected you know the team in ways that it's not fair to them, but but uh, I'm fortunate to have them as colleagues and friends. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure it's it's probably infection in, in in your passion for what you do, right? There's probably a difference there. You bring up culture a lot, Jeff, and I'm just curious from from your seat at the table, what do you admire most about the culture that you, you've, you've tried to foster uh, as, as part of the fifth third management team? I, the focus on the client. I, and, uh, you know, I had uh, conversations early on in my years where uh, there, was, there was an inherent cli- uh, conflict between what was the right thing for the client and what was the right thing for the shareholder, you know, the bottom line or meeting a, a, uh, um, an internal target. And I'm used to, in all these other places I've worked, you have this dance to do when you try to balance out competing interests. And um, in, in several of these meetings, uh, I had someone, uh, you know, a senior executive say, oh, this is easy. We do the right thing for the client. Right. I mean, that to me is, you know, oh, we have to do this because that's the right thing. That kind of moral compass um, is something I'm very proud to participate in. You know, we're not perfect like anywhere else. And, and you know, there, there are um, weak spots in any organization of this size where maybe people aren't as aligned. But um, in the in the um, the areas that I've been responsible for or witnessed, there's been this very, very clear focus on doing the right thing, meaning doing the right thing by the client. And, and that's a great way to start every day and, and go to bed at night with that, that, uh, that that's circling your day. Hmm. On, on, just on that note as well, um, speaking of you, I mean, obviously you, you write a lot about talent in a different way. Curious, just internally, what are some of the things you look for when you're managing a team specifically with talent? Uh, trust is really big. You know, I have to feel I trust the, the person as a person. And uh, that, that goes a, tr- a long way to uh, covering, you know, if I fall short as a manager, instead of that turning into some kind of a disaster, my team, I hope and I believe, trusts me so that, you know, they can come to me and say, Chef, what are you talking about? What are you doing? Or, you know, or, or, or they know my intention is good, even if I messed up on the execution. You know, so those kind of, uh, so having relationships with people you trust is good. I'm also, um, and I think the book probably reflects this, a believer in um, diversity for its own sake. And it's really important to understand where people are coming from and to understand accomplishment comes in many forms and, and um, you know, not not being interested in hiring people just like me, uh, but people who bring a wealth of experiences. And that means you have to be able to uh, judge talent on its own merit and uh, judge accomplishment in its, own, uh, in its own merit. So it really starts with where did people start from? What, what are the things that they've accomplished? I, years ago, I used to interview and, you know, I'd have this whole bunch of interview questions but my interview boiled out to two questions. You know, tell me about an obstacle in your life, uh, professionally, academic, personally, that you had to overcome and how you did it. And then question number two was tell me about another obstacle that you couldn't overcome on your own 
and what you did about it. And so it, it shows, you know, lets people share their own story of accomplishment in, in ways that you can really judge it. And also the, the second question speaks to coachability. And that's obviously an important trait uh, as well. And, and speaking of, of challenges, one of the, the, the last questions I wanted to, to ping you about was, um, you're, you're an int- interesting role, but also interesting space and the environment's constantly changing, certainly in 2020 for all of us. How do you keep your cool, man? As a, as a chief, oh. I, I just you had know, to ask uh, in a very, very, uh, very informal yeah, yeah. way. So, so no, that's an interesting <laughs> question because um, not getting caught up emotionally is really important in being a good investment um, strategist. And uh, so I have certain disciplines. Uh, so uh, I, I do not have a TV on regularly. I do value uh, the financial news channels and, you know, I appear on, on, on most of them, uh, but I'm very selective. So I tend to read their websites and only then will I go to a video, but I don't have it on live. Um, I don't um, use Twitter for investment resources. I, I, I do have a Twitter account it's more for the book and, and to be in, just visible in some of those circles. But uh, I, I think reading as opposed to viewing information is really important. And um, I'm blessed to be in an industry where um, age and experience really works with you. And uh, I have, I I personally think I've gotten better as I get older, because I can look back and say, oh, this reminds me of what happened in, you know, spring of 1988. And you, you have some historical reference, and you've been through enough booms and busts and frenzies and manias and depressing depressing things that you um, you can put some emotional wall between you and, and that's really important if if we're if if I'm going to serve our clients well I have to have some emotional detachment and uh, so so that's an important part of, of my personal discipline that I bring to this yeah that that's what one of my mentors used to always tell me right more books less news yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, um, last one to wrap it up. This is a rapid one. Uh, you're Tom Hanks. The movie is Cast Away. Um, I'm hopefully you're a fan, but uh, regardless, what's one book that you hopefully want to have with you on that on that trip? Hopefully, wow. it doesn't happen. By the way, I'm, I'm just just for the exaggeration. Wow. Oh, I'll take a survival guide. I'm a pragmatist. <laughs> so, so, so some Boy Scout survival guide. Or how do you build a build a sailboat or a raft? I, 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 I'll take the practical approach. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next time.